Psalm 113. Uh, in just a few months, we're going to have the joy as a country of celebrating Thanksgiving together. And I think at, when that holiday comes, when that weekend comes, Christians and non-Christians alike uh, and per, we'll, we'll probably get together and maybe sit around living rooms or wherever else they're gathered and they may have conversations about what they're thankful for. And I'm sure things will come up like family and friends, uh, health, jobs and possessions and whatever may come to mind. And even those people to whom life has really not been all that kind will probably even be able to think of a thing or two for which they're grateful and thankful. On most Thanksgiving weekends, whenever it comes around, I find myself overwhelmed when I contemplate just how good God has been to me. And I think it's a Christian, it's uniquely so, because we're able to recognize that all that we have, it's, it's not because we work so hard to get it, or we somehow earned all of this. It's just the good hand of God in our lives. As Christians, we know that every blessing comes directly from the hand of God. And so I find myself with Thanksgiving weekend wanting to praise God and thank Him for what He's done for me. And I would imagine that's you too, that you also, when that weekend comes around, you want to just say, God, thank you. And on most of those Thanksgiving weekends, your heart is full. Uh, the thing is, though, that I don't always live my whole year like that. Is Thanksgiving weekend the only time that God is worthy of our praise? Uh, why is it every weekend, Thanksgiving weekend, and every Sunday, Praise Sunday, in our hearts? Why is that? Perhaps it's because our praise is often tied more to our circumstances and external blessings than it is to God himself. I think sometimes we forget just how worthy of our praise God actually is, just simply by virtue of who he is. And that's what this text is all about. Psalm 113 is a psalm of praise. In fact, it's part of a larger section of psalms. Uh, psalm 113 to 118, they're known as the Hallel, or the hymns of praise. And customarily, uh, throughout the last uh, several centuries, the Jewish people sing these six psalms at Passover time. And typically what they do, they'll sing the first two, 113 and 114, before the meal. And then they'll sing the last four after it. As many of you know, the Passover was a time for the Jewish people to remember what God had done for them and delivering them from the exodus, delivering them from Egypt and, and bringing them out of the, the land of bondage and slavery and making them his people. It very much parallels actually our salvation. And so the Passover was a time for the Jewish people to remember this and praise God for it. And this psalm here, it's here to summon you as well to praise the Lord. And for centuries, that's what this psalm has done. It's summoned God's people from really through, ever since it was written from that point until now. People all across the face of the earth to praise the Lord. Psalm 113 verse 1. Let's start there. We read these words. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Uh, the psalmist there, he just stated his thesis three times, actually, for emphasis. Uh, in the, the Hebrew tongue of the psalmist, the opening words of this psalm sound like this. He says, Hallelujah, or praise Yah, or Yahweh. When we sing Hallelujah, which we sing often in our songs, it means praise the Lord. 
And to do such is your great privilege as well as your calling and your responsibility as a Christian. I believe this psalm makes two interlinked assertions. The first would be this. There is never a moment when God is not worthy of your praise. There is never a moment when God is not worthy of your praise. If we were to take the double negatives out of that statement and just state it simply and positively, God is always worthy of your praise. God's name is worthy of your praise at all times. And the psalmist is going to elaborate on that. That God's name is worthy of your praise at all times and in all places. God's name is worthy of your praise at all times. Look at verse 2. The psalmist continues, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, This verse tells you when God is worthy of your praise. Both now, he says, and forevermore. In this verse of the the text, the psalmist, uh, this verse actually, and then also the one to come. The psalmist uses a literary feature that's known as merism, which basically you state uh, two things, two opposite ends of the spectrum, and, and you state it on one side and then on the other side so as to include everything in between. And he's saying, listen, God is worthy of your praise right here at this point, now, today. And God is also worthy of your praises all the way throughout the eternal ages. Which also means that he is worthy of your praise at every single time and moment in between. God's name is worthy of praise at all times. And along with that, God's name is worthy of praise in all places. Look at verse 3. It continues, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. You notice what he did there. Again, he just kind of put two endpoints to include everything in between. The psalmist uses the image of the rising and setting sun to capture two ideas. The idea of time and also the idea of space. Let me explain. Time. The sun rises in the morning and it sets in the evening. So from dawn until dusk, every waking hour of your day, God is worthy of your praise. There's a time reference there, but there's also a space reference or a location reference. The sun rises where? Way out in the east. And it sets way out in the west. From east to west and every place in between, God is worthy of your praise. Everywhere the sun shines, God is worthy of praise. Everywhere the sun shines is a place where people should praise the Lord. By the way, I think a verse like verse 3 is an excellent reminder to us as God's people, the church, of our mission. That God says that he is worthy of praise at all times and in all places. And we go way back to the book of Acts. And where was God being praised? In Jerusalem. And he basically gave this this prophecy that, that, that the gospel was going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and all the way out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Everywhere the sun shines, the gospel is going to go, and there people will praise the Lord. And it is our mission as a people, as as the people who God has saved, to take this good news from here and everywhere around us so that people all over the globe will praise the Lord. And one of those places is right here in Beaumont. God wants people to come to faith in him 
and become worshipers who praise the name of Jesus Christ. So verse 3 teaches that there is not a time, a place, a situation, or a circumstance when God is not worthy of your praise. So praise the Lord. You know, in your 40 years of life, or however long you've been around, there has not been so much as even a millisecond of time when God has not been worthy of your praise. In fact, in all the nations of the world, there has not, nor is there currently, nor will there ever be, a nation, a kingdom, a province, a city, a hamlet, a neighborhood, or a home where God is not worthy of praise. When I was a boy, my grandparents had purchased uh, this massive old Victorian home. It was a bit dilapidated when they bought it. They, They did a bunch of work on it to renovate it. And it was just this beautiful old home uh, with amazing character. When you walked in the front door, uh, it, first of all, the ceilings seemed like they, they were probably as high as the ceilings in this room. That's probably a bit of an exaggeration. But they seemed like they were 10 to 12 feet tall. Um, they were, and you walked in and right away, as soon as you walked in the door, was this beautiful wooden staircase running along the wall and then curving over, bending over at the top. And if you walk straight down the hall, past that staircase, uh, the hall opened up into this uh, library or office of sorts with uh, bookshelves from floor to ceiling. And my grandfather's desk sat right there in the middle of the room. And right beside his desk, he had this globe uh, suspended on this, from this stand. It was a, really, it was a neat globe. It, it had, I think, kind of the texture of the topography on the globe, you could feel it, and the way it was suspended, you could just spin it around in circles and circles. And my cousins, whenever we gathered at uh, Grandma and Grandpa's house, we'd spin the globe. We, we liked it. It was just really fascinating. There's something about looking at the globe all, all there. You're just seeing all of planet Earth right there. And we would read the names of the places and spin the globe around and around. It's amazing, as I said, to see the globe like that and everywhere on that globe. And every second it has ever spun throughout the ages is a place where God is worthy of praise by people. There is never a moment when God is not worthy of your praise. Now, I think we'd probably say, yeah, I I know that's true and that's great in theory, But I can think of times and places, at least I know for myself, I can think of times and places in my own life where I've actually struggled with that concept and I haven't felt like that. Times perhaps when I struggled not to be angry with God or maybe at times when I was disappointed with God or I had other ideas about what he should be doing in my life, for example. Times that I wanted to argue with God about his dealings with me. You've probably felt that way. Is every moment of your life a moment where you just say, yes, I want to praise God at this time and in this place and in this circumstance? Further, I think that we can look at times and places in history where evil reigned and evil seemed to triumph. So so what about the problem of evil? And what about these times of sorrow and hurt and pain and struggle that each and every one of us experiences? Maybe, just maybe, there are some times and some places and some locations and circumstances where God is not so worthy of our praise. No. The psalmist says, no, 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 no. (laughs) You don't understand. That's impossible. 
And this psalm explains why. It explains why that is and why God is always worthy of your praise, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the event. Assertion number one, there is never a moment when God is not worthy of your praise because, assertion number two, there is never a moment when God is not himself. There's never a moment when God is not worthy of your praise because there's never a moment when God is not himself. In other words, God is always worthy of your praise because God is always himself. And what is that? The remainder of this text draws our attention to two things about God that we could actually state multiple ways. And they are the reason that God is always worthy of our praise at all times and in all places. And as I said, we could maybe state these two two reasons in multiple ways. We might say it this way, that God is transcendent. He's, He's far beyond. And at the same time, He's imminent, or or we might use the simple language of he's near. Or perhaps we could word it this way, God is great. And in our dealings with us, he's gracious. Or maybe we could word it this way, nothing is too great for God, and no one too small. The first idea, no matter how we choose to word it, is that God is incomparably transcendent and great. That's what comes out here in verses 4 and 5. Look at these verses. The psalmist continues, The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? God is seated on high. In other words, he is seated on a throne that is indescribably high. And there he's arrayed in blinding and accessible glory. He dwells in a place, I think we could say, where, where no one could ever go. Where no one could ever somehow ascend up to. And where no one could ever approach. He is incomparably transcendent and great. He's in a category of his own where no one else belongs. By the way, if you think that somehow you're, by your merit and good works that you could spend eternity with God in his presence, think again. Because this, this verse is just reminding us God is high and exalted and elevated where no one else is. According to verse 4, he's high above all nations. Uh, The throne, power, and dominion of any and every nation is nothing compared to God's. Uh, Not even the king who rules over the kingdom of this world, Satan himself, rivals the one who is seated on high. You may recall these words from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah wrote this, Behold, look, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as, as dust on the scales. They don't weigh anything. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? To whom then will you compare him? Verse 4 then explains that his glory is above the heavens. In other words, the very heavens themselves, what we think of as the heavens, are almost out of sight below him. 
I would imagine that many of you have flown on an airplane. It's kind of a, a cool experience. Maybe you remember the very first time you did that. And there you are sitting on the runway on the airplane. And next thing you know, you start to take flight and you get higher and higher and higher and higher. And, and as, as you increase in height, everything below you just gets smaller. And it's kind of this neat thing where it's like at first you're, you're picking out like, oh, I don't, oh, I'm just looking at this in my city and that in my city. And now I'm looking, oh, I can kind of see people and cars. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I, I just see earth. I can't pick out any people. I can't pick out any places. And eventually people and animals are nothing more than little tiny specks if you can see them at all. Most of us have also Uh, though we haven't gone to space ourselves, have seen satellite photos of planet Earth. It's amazing to see something so mad, what what would be so massive from down here, to see it all in a glance. Just the globe, Earth spinning around with the clouds. Something that seems so massive and immense to us becomes small and visible all at once. And from where God is at, maybe Earth... It's just a teeny, tiny little speck. And so we proclaim with the psalmist, who is like the Lord our God? And there's an implied, obvious answer to that. No one, absolutely no one, is like our God. He's totally incomparable. He has no rival. There's no throne that that is anywhere close to his. There's there's no throne above his. There's no throne beside his. In fact, there's no throne that, that is literally anywhere close to where his throne sits. There is no one more important, more honorable, or more powerful. He's incomparably transcendent and great. And so, maybe that would prompt us to ask this question. Just how high is he? Verse 6 answers that question for us. It explains that he is so high that he looks down on the heavens and the earth. And actually, the the original language involves this idea of, of, of humility. The idea is that he has to humble or abase himself to stoop down and, and look at the heavens and the earth. As the Jerusalem Bible puts it, he is enthroned so high that he needs to stoop to see the sky and earth. Amazing. So here's a question for you. As you look at verse 6, is verse 6 describing something that God would have to do? Or is it describing something that God does? Is it describing something that God would have to do? Or is it describing something that God does? In verse, is verse 6, in other words, is verse 6 saying that God is so high and exalted and elevated that he would have to humble himself to stoop down to look at us? Or is it saying that that's exactly what he does? It's stated in such a way and it's positioned in such a place in this text that both are meant and both are true. Verse 6 is this awesome transitional verse between God's transcendence and his greatness and his eminence, his nearness to us and his grace. Though God is so beyond us, he stoops to look and involve himself in your and my affairs. Though he's enthroned on high, 
He's anything but aloof. God is incomparably transcendent and great, and simultaneously God is wonderfully eminent, or we might say near, and gracious. Verses 4 and 5, we're just talking about God's greatness and his transcendence and his grandeur and his glory, and that he's in a place where no one else belongs. And then all of a sudden, in verses 6 to 9, we start reading about people. Lowly people become the focus. God comes down to intervene in the affairs of the poor, the struggling, the barren, and the lonely to reverse their condition and lift them up. And as we'll see, he goes from the height of glory to actually the garbage heap and to the grieving home of a barren woman. In verses 7 to 9, God gives two examples of the kind of thing that he does and the kind of space that he's in. Example number one is, is the poor man. Look at verses 7 to 8. It says of God that, well, let's back up in, to verse 6 and this idea of him looking down and coming down, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust. And lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. The poor man here is described as sitting in the dust and the ash heap. What's that a reference to? Well, first of all, it's a picture picture of misery, misery and degradation. In ancient times, garbage was heaped up. It was piled up and then burned. And that's where in this text the poor man is. He's by this heap of garbage where they're burning it. And he's in the garbage heap looking probably for food and other resources. And he's being warmed by the burning of garbage. What a lowly estate. And God takes people like that and he raises them, he says, to sit with princes. He, He elevates them from their humble estate to sit with princes. God graciously intervenes in that kind of way. These verses about God raising the poor, verses 7 to 8, were actually sung by a young woman. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, her name was Hannah. Verses 7 to 8, you'll find pretty much an exact quote in that passage. And this barren woman named Hannah, after pouring out her heart to God... God ended up blessing her with a little boy named Samuel. You may remember that story. And so the second example here uh, in the next verse comes as no surprise. Example number two is the barren woman. Look at verse nine. Speaking of God, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Ancient Israel, uh, the the culture of ancient Israel would have been different than ours in the sense that on the whole, Israel was an honor-shame society. Honor was extremely important. You preserved honor at all costs and you avoided shame at all costs. Our world's a little different. We don't seem to care much about that. But in ancient Israel, it was a big deal. And in that world, barrenness would have been almost a stigma of sorts. It was like a sign of shame. 
And on the flip side, a woman with many children was in a position of honor and high regard. And in verse 9, we we have this woman, uh, something that I would imagine many of you could sympathize with. We have this woman experiencing the pain and heartache of barrenness. She would like to be pregnant. She would like to have children. And for whatever reason, that has not been God's plan for her. She wants kids so badly, but can't seem to have them. And God graciously gives her children and fills her home with joy, laughter, and the craziness that children bring. What's the point of these two examples? It's not that God always raises the poor. And it's not that God always gives the barren woman children. You know, frankly, sometimes he doesn't do that in his perfect, all-wise plan. The point, though, is that God does that kind of thing. He's in that space. The transcendent God of the universe is always graciously uh, and intimately involved in the lives of his children for their betterment, for their exaltation, for their lifting up. And the psalm ends where it started with these words. Praise the Lord. Because the transcendent God of the universe is involved in my life. One writer says that the psalm finishes with what seems an anticlimax. And he highlights that that anticlimax must not be disguised. Because it's here that God's glory most sharply differs from man's. A glory that is equally at home above the heavens and at the side of one forlorn person. That's our God. His glory, he's arrayed on high and endless glory and majesty. But that's not the only place his glory is seen. God's glory is seen beside people like you and me who are desperately in need of help. And so I have a question for you. In what ways has your incomparably transcendent and great God shown himself wonderfully eminent and gracious towards you? Uh, just, just practically, what can you praise him for? In your life as a Christian, in, in your life as a whole, what is it that God has done for you? What is it that you can praise him for? I mean, could you think of a whole list of things? God, you've been so good to me and thank you in my time of trouble or, or my time of need. You were involved in my situation. And God, just thank you throughout all the little things in my life. You were there. And could you make a, a, a big list like that? You know, if you're struggling to think of an instance in your life where a transcendent and eminent God intervened to reverse your condition for the better, or if perhaps you're sitting there right now frustrated and struggling with God that he has not graciously intervened with something that you're begging him about, and I think that's often the case. We have these things, God, would you please, would you please, would you please, and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and God, would you hear my prayers? And God, would you answer my prayers? And, and after a while, God, why aren't you? Well, I want to show you something. I want you to turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. I think this text will be quite familiar to you, or at least to many of you. I want to draw your attention to Philippians chapter 2, and particularly, particularly to verses 6 to 8. So Philippians chapter 2, let's look together 
Start reading beginning in verse 6. It begins with the word who. If you back up into the chapter there, that's very obviously a reference to Jesus. Just look back one or two words. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. And what does it say about Jesus Christ? Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. Okay, let's, just, let's just pause for a second. What, what are those verses talking about? It's talking about what we might call the pre-incarnate existence of Jesus Christ. Where was Jesus before he was here? He was elevated on high with God the Father in the heavenly realm, in a place of glory. And these verses just said that that is not something he clutched onto. That is not something he held onto. Instead, it says, verse 7, he made himself nothing. What's that a reference to? Did he lay aside his deity? No. He laid aside the glory of the heavenly realm. And he took on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. He came here. And was born of a woman. And verse 8 continues in being found in human form. He humbled himself. The humbling continues. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The humility of Jesus Christ took him all the way from, from the high exalted place there in the glories of heaven. Literally all the way to the depths of the earth. The grave itself. There is death on the cross For your sins and mine. Jesus Christ left his high and exalted throne. And traded it for a cross. Where he would pay in full the price of your sin. Listen there is no greater example. Anywhere. Everywhere. Throughout all of time. Of Psalm 113. Than the incarnation and the saving work of Jesus Christ. He left the heavenly realm. And he did something. He stooped. To the grave. So that he might raise you from the grave. Remember Ephesians talks about how you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He he left the heavenly realm and stooped to the grave. So that he might raise you from the grave. And do what according to Ephesians chapter 1. Seat you in heavenly places. And make you rich as a joint heir with Christ. Isn't that amazing? And yet some of us would sit here and go, is the God of Psalm 113 my God today? Oh, yes. Absolutely. By the way, if what I just described is not your story, if you have not, when I talk about being raised from the grave and and seated on high with Jesus Christ, if that's not your story, God wants it to be your story. You realize that Jesus Christ came to earth became the God-man. He lived perfectly in your place where you have not lived perfectly. 
and he died on the cross. And what was he doing there? He was satisfying God's wrath for your sin. And he paid that price in full so that you could be restored to a relationship with your creator, God the Father. And he's turned around and he said to you, listen, you don't perform to get this salvation. You don't perform to be right with God and have eternity in heaven. Jesus performed. Jesus did everything. You're unworthy. You're a sinner. There's no way you can ascend the throne of God. He's elevated on high. You can't get there. Jesus has already done everything. If you want eternal life in God's presence and your sin forgiven, Jesus said this. He said, repent and believe. Turn from your sin. Confess it to God and believe. Trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, there's never a time when God is not himself. And so we're going to praise the Lord as this psalm concludes. There's never a moment when God is not worthy of your praise because there's never a moment when God is not himself. There's never a moment when God is not incomparably great and wonderfully gracious. He's worthy of endless and eternal praise. I want to close this morning with the words of Isaiah chapter 57, uh, verse 15. Actually, Isaiah regularly and often captured this idea of God being transcendent beyond us and yet near and close. In fact, all the way throughout the book of Isaiah, Isaiah keeps referring to God as the Holy One. The one who's separate from us in in a category of his own. But Isaiah just keeps calling him the Holy One of Israel. The transcendent one who has a people. And as he gets to the end of his book, Isaiah 57, verse 15, we read these words. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, that's God, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Here's what God says. Here's what our transcendent, awesome God says. I dwell in the high and holy place. And then he tells us who he dwells with. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So I hope we'll say with the psalmist this morning, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Would you bow with me this morning as we conclude?